If you're visiting with us this morning, we're continuing on in a series um, at the moment, looking at the seven sayings of Jesus that he said from the cross. And today we're going to be looking at one that he said, and it only appears in Matthew and Mark. And not only is it, does it only appear in those two Gospels alone, but it's the only saying that each one of them records. So I'm going to read from verse 45 to verse 56. And this is God's word. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, it's a great delight that we can meet together this morning as your people. That we can just not meet together with friends and brothers and sisters, but we can meet with you, the true and living God. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit. That you would open our ears and that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Father, we pray that you would also empower me that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Encourage us and strengthen us, we pray, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I got asked a really good question during the week. It was, why follow this particular order in preaching on the seven sayings of Jesus. 
I could have preached them chronologically and jumped from one gospel to the other. Uh, But that would have been, quite frankly, messy and difficult. And it would have been somewhat arbitrary because each of the gospel writers include different sayings to emphasise a unique theological truth. On the other hand, I could have started with Matthew uh, and then Mark and then looked at the sayings in Luke and John. I normally spend a fair bit of time planning a sermon series and to be honest, the question took me by surprise because the order that I have approached things is a little strange and even random. When I stopped and really thought about it, I realised that the answer was personal rather than logical. Why start with the three sayings in Luke that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks and then go back to the one in Matthew and Mark before finishing with the three sayings in the Gospel of John? Well, because when I was growing up, I really struggled to understand what Jesus meant when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That particular saying really troubled me as a child because it looked like Jesus didn't really know what was going on. Even as someone who has been a Christian for a number of years, I wanted to give myself, I think, a bit of time to really think about it and its meaning before I preached on it. Which is why I started with Luke, because I found what Jesus had to say there so much easier and straightforward. By God's grace, though, I've since discovered that what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark is the most misunderstood saying of Jesus. At least that is for me. It's misunderstood in that rather than Jesus doubting why he had to die, he was actually making a climactic statement as to his triumph. You see, Jesus is quoting from the opening line of Psalm 22. And when you quote an opening line to a poem or a song or a movie, then you're actually bringing the meaning of the whole thing into, into bear. For instance, if I was to hop on a horse and I was to say this, there was movement at the station for the word had passed around that the cult of old regret had got away. On the surface, if you were just taking what I said as a standalone statement, you would think that I was complaining about losing a horse. But if you're familiar with the classic Aussie bush poet Banjo Patterson and his epic poem, The Man from Snowy River, then you would realise that I was actually saying the exact opposite. That my statement about the, old, the cult of old regret that had gotten away was actually the opening line or the opening scene which would lead to this heroic victory or recovery. So rather than being someone who had lost his horse, I was actually claiming to be the hero. 
And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. Matthew and Mark only include one saying of Jesus. And they also record him saying it in another language, in Aramaic. And on top of all that, he says it in a loud voice to add emphasis. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both Matthew and Mark write that Jesus said this in a loud voice because he obviously wanted everyone to hear. You see, Jesus wasn't doubting or questioning his death. But he was pointing to its true meaning and significance. As we saw earlier from our reading from Psalm 22, Jesus is identifying himself with none other than King David. The righteous sufferer who is not only treated completely unfairly by those around him, but whose suffering is eerily similar to what happened to Jesus a thousand years later. In fact, it's so similar that Psalm 22 is often referred to as the fifth gospel. He's mocked and insulted. He's surrounded by his enemies. He's taunted by, uh, to have the Lord deliver or save him. Not only that, but his hands and feet are pierced. And they even cast lots for his clothing. It's impossible to read Psalm 22 and not see a description of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's so similar that it's uncanny. But if you've still got your Bibles open, have a look again at how it ends in verses 29 to 31. Because what David says there is absolutely amazing. See, he says in verse 29, All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. Just exactly how will those who go down to the dust, that is, those who die from dust we are to dust will we return, how will they kneel before him? Those whom Psalm 22 explicitly says cannot keep themselves alive. How are dead people going to consciously worship this person who has himself been killed? Well, only if he continues to be alive, huh? Only if, as we've been already seeing over the past couple of weeks, that death is not the end and that he comes back to life. 
not only he comes back to life, but we do too. Already we've seen how Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And then last week we also looked at the saying where Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which meant that Jesus knew that death was not the end. There is another dimension beyond the grave in which we ourselves will all enter long after, or immediately after I should say, our bodies have fallen asleep. Just take another look at what David says in verses 30 and 31 of Psalm 22. Because this specifically relates to you and me. We are the ones being spoken of here. For this is the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has achieved. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Done what? He has provided the atonement for our sins. The suffering servant has become our sacrifice. He has kept the law of God perfectly and then he has died in our place. And in so doing, he has given to us his perfect righteousness as a garment of salvation. We are the people, friends, which this passage in Psalm 22 is referring to. We are the ones who are being told about the Lord, who are having his righteousness proclaimed to us. We are the ones who are worshipping the righteous sufferer who came back to life, even though it happened thousands of years ago. I said this a few weeks ago, but the death and resurrection of Jesus, or with it, all of human history has changed. We've moved from the era of BC, which means before Christ, to the period which we're now in, which is AD. The phrase doesn't mean, uh, as is commonly misunderstood, after death, but it comes from the Latin. Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. That's because 2022 is the year in which Jesus lives and reigns. Even though he is alive, even though he died, even though he suffered, he has conquered the grave once and for all. And because of that, all of human history has changed. Now, anyone can obviously say the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people could say it in desperation or hopelessness. And simply saying them doesn't mean that you're actually fulfilling the prophecy that Psalm 22 is concerned about. 
What immediately happens after Jesus dies, though, proves that he really is the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22. Let me give you the following reasons. The first is that scripture is being fulfilled. That might sound a bit obvious, but it's actually really important. It's one of the main reasons why I personally believe that Jesus is the Christ, is because he so perfectly fulfills everything that the Old Testament said the Christ would come to do. I have this beautiful print uh, on my office wall which shows all of the different ways that the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. One of the most important things that I think we do each week when we come to church, and it's a shame, can I just add, that many churches don't do this, is we have a Bible reading from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. Because not only is it how, that is Scripture, how the Lord speaks to us, but it also shows how the one fulfills the other. Josh McDowell, in his famous book, More Than a Carpenter, has a really good illustration in this regard. He says that the mathematical uh, possibility of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling even just eight of the prophecies that the Old Testament talked about and that made about him is the equivalent of 10 to the power of 17. That's 110 with 17 zeros behind it. And to give you some idea of how large a figure this is, he says it's like taking 10 to the power of 17 dollar coins and spreading them all over the surface of Tasmania. It would cover, he reckons, a depth of about a metre. Now, Mark, one of those $10 coins, stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, then blindfold a man, telling that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up only $1 coin and say that is the right one. What chance would you have of getting it right? Well, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just these eight prophecies and have them come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing that they all wrote it in their own wisdom and were not inspired by God. As we've already seen that beautifully illustrated today, haven't we, in Psalm 22, of how Jesus suffers in precisely the same way that David did. The second reason why Jesus is saying is true is because as soon as he dies, the sun stops shining. Or oh, sorry, the sun starts shining again. Michael looked at this last week when he preached from Luke 23. For three hours, Jesus is being crucified. The sun stops giving its light. It was a supernatural event. It couldn't have been a, su uh, a solar eclipse um, since the time in which Jesus is being crucified is the Passover and it's a full moon. Not only does the sun stop shining though, but it comes back on again as soon as Jesus dies. 
So all of creation is testifying to this extraordinary event. Jesus, the light of the world, the one who made the world through him, is dying for us. Not only that, but third, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom at the exact same moment as the light comes on and Jesus dies. The Old Testament uh, sacrificial system is now fulfilled and we can come to God directly without offering any more sacrifices or the mediation of a priest. I think this aspect alone in and of itself is spiritually massive because Jesus is being crucified in the very same region that Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, not only did the Lord not intend for Isaac to be killed because he himself provided a ram in his place. But Jesus is the true son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then there's the fourth piece of evidence. The earthquakes and the rocks split open. Jesus' death really is a cataclysmic event. The very fabric of creation is being torn apart with his death. All of creation is testifying to its meaning and its significance. Not only that, but the dead are raised back to life. As we read in verses 52 and 53, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. How incredible it must have been to the generation of Jesus' day. It shows that Jesus' death and resurrection has ramifications for everyone who believes in him. Not only is he himself being vindicated as being innocent, but that his death and subsequent resurrection is going to be the first fruits of something that's even greater to come. Once again, it's a sign of what Psalm 22 was pointing to. All who go down to the dust of the earth will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Six, the Gentile guards are converted. Matthew tells us that the centurion and those guarding Jesus with him were profoundly changed by what they witnessed. These battle-hardened men not only perceived that Jesus was innocent, but that surely he was the Son of God. Sadly, we would have hoped and expected that the Jews might have been the first to acknowledge this, but instead it was the Gentiles. And then finally, while a little outside our passage, the most significant point of all is that Jesus himself rose again from the dead. Everything really rests on this central truth. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate proof that he really is who he says he is. Everything stands or falls on this. Lots of people can claim to be the Son of God, but only Jesus can prove it beyond all doubt. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis says. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let none of that let not any come with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What Lewis says here is spot on. We ourselves are left with the question, who do we think Jesus is? We ourselves either have to conclude, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord God Almighty? We must not ever make the mistake, though, of simply referring to him as some great moral teacher. Have you come to him in worship? Trusting in his salvation and turning from your sin? You may have heard about Jesus and believed in everything about him, but have you experienced the new birth of his spirit and been born again? If you haven't, then why not come and believe in him today? If you already have done that, though, let, let me encourage you with this great truth. Because he has been forsaken so that you and I can be accepted. Jesus has been forsaken so that you and I can be accepted. What should we do in response to understanding this victorious event? Well, David says in Psalm 22, we should really be part of proclaiming his righteousness. We shouldn't keep this good news to ourselves, but we should share it with everyone we meet. This is the answer to death. <coughs> Sharing the gospel starts with prayer, though, doesn't it? Because we need the supernatural God, grace of God to be able to believe it and to receive it. Can I just say that's why I think things like our weekly prayer meeting before church is so crucial. 
because we want the Lord to pour out his grace so that the gospel will spread through this great city of Hobart. My brothers and sisters, that you may have convicted this morning and we pray that you'll give them the grace to believe and to repent, to experience that supernatural grace of new birth. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for ourselves, we who have received this good news, that we will be profoundly changed. In two ways, Lord, that first and foremostly we would be a people of prayer, talking to you about the salvation of others, because we know that this can only happen by your power. And Father, we pray that we would secondly be a people of courage, that we would share with those that don't know you the good news of what Jesus has done and the victory that he has achieved. Father, we pray for conversions in this great city, for people to come out of darkness into light, from death to eternal life. Father, we come before you and we plead with you that you will grow your kingdom and glorify your name. We are weak, but you are strong. And so we commit our prayers into your hands, Lord, looking forward expectantly to how you will answer them. For we pray them in the name of Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.